0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast.
1: Tonight, as the House of Commons passes the government's latest COVID-19 economic aid package, the Prime Minister says his government will be there to help Canadians. As coronavirus race shatter all the records in the Western Provinces, we'll look at how different governments across the country are responding and what Ottawa can do to help. Our journalists look at how Canadian politicians are dealing with the American election. And our party observers weigh in on the Prime Minister's phone call to French President Emmanuel Macron. Did Justin Trudeau's comments on free speech and terrorist attacks harm Canada-France relations? Well, we start with Prime Minister Trudeau, who joined Friday's briefing by officials from the Canada Public Health Agency today, and he was asked about the second wave of the coronavirus and what more Ottawa can do to help those Canadians affected by future closures and lockdowns.
0: We are going to stay focused on supporting people as long as we need to, as long as they need us to, through this pandemic, so that when we come out of it we're going to be able to get things back to normal quickly have our economy come roaring back and be there to build back better but we can't do that until we get through this pandemic which is why it's so important for people to continue to follow public health advice and know that your federal government is there to have your back to support you whatever it takes as long as it takes until we get through this pandemic
1: Joining me now to look at the surge of infections in Western Canada and the continuing high levels in Ontario and Quebec is Raywat Dianandan. He is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Mr. Dianandan, thanks for taking the time.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for
1: having me. OK, can we start with what, I, I, at least for me, this is really captivating to see and, and, and somewhat uh, worrisome, is to see the surge that we're seeing in Western Canada, uh, especially with Manitoba, the highest rates in the country, but also this incredibly strong surge we saw in Alberta and in B.C., Saskatchewan equally. They're breaking records almost daily. What do you make, let's look at Alberta. What do you make of the fact when you hear the chief medical officer there saying that, to date, voluntary measures in Edmonton and Calgary don't seem to be working.
2: This has kind of been the lesson around the world, where we have to cramp down hard and early to get the best possible outcomes, and so a failure to institute You know, compulsory restrictions on people's movements seems to manifest as high caseloads down the road. People always look to Sweden as the best example of how voluntary restrictions can work. However, even Sweden is seeing a strong surge these days, and they're instituting some some restrictions as well. So, unfortunately, even though in a liberal democratic tradition we like to rely upon individual recognizance to limit exposure, it seems that we do need some governmental oversight on limiting our opportunities for interaction.
1: Uh, Dina Henshaw, yesterday in her press conference, the uh, chief medical officer in Alberta, was saying that their figures seem to suggest that 10% of people who are going shopping are going to school and are going to work while displaying symptoms. So obviously there's a non compliance rate that's fairly high. Is that surprising to you?
2: it's not surprising unfortunately unfortunately like i wish we could rely upon yeah. people to be responsible but this pandemic has taught us many things among them is that there is always going to be an intractable small percentage of people who cannot be relied upon to follow public health guidance and they're the ones who are threatening the entire game as it were so we need uh, government and um, leisure and public health to step in and compel behavior unfortunately
1: Is it it surprising? Because one person, you know, people I know in medicine say, well, why are we surprised? This is what we do every day of our life with the flu and other infections. We are trained to go to work sick
2: that's true that's absolutely true and this also segues into another part of the conversation which is people are still thinking about this as just another kind of flu and it isn't right so the less that we entangle those two concepts code and the flu i think the better off will be this is a novel experience that requires a bit more precautionary thinking and therefore more more kid gloves to treat it people need to stay home when they are symptomatic that also means that employers have to be Empowered to allow their workers to stay home, and a lot of people have jobs that don't allow distance uh, distance work, don't allow working from home, and don't have sick days. So this is a societal level endeavor that needs to be explore more
1: fully. Uh, One of the reasons this is not the flu, obviously, is hospitalizations and death rates. In Manitoba, I was stunned to see the figures in Manitoba. 21 deaths out of 87 have been in the last week of the whole pandemic, that many in the last week. Manitoba, the death rates are very high now and the hospitalization rates. What are we seeing elsewhere in the country?
2: Well, hopefully it won't be as bad as Manitoba, but Western Canada is on fire as some have described it. Ontario is seeing an uptick in deaths as well. Uh, We have a thousand cases a day on average, and yet we're reopening some places, which is not advisable in my opinion. Uh, Quebec, similar condition. Atlantic Canada continues to look good. The Atlantic bubble is an example to us all of how to do this right. So we're entering a hard, cold winter where people are going to be indoors more. We're going to have to uh, combat the flu in addition to COVID and where things are still open. And so the opportunities for transmission remain high. This is the beginning of a hard season, not the middle or the end of it.
1: Okay, I have to put a point to you. In Ontario, uh, much was made about Predictions and then different predictions and all that. But we're seeing about a thousand cases a day for almost two, three weeks now in Ontario. In Quebec, we're seeing about a thousand cases a day and it's got much less population. But people seem to be suggesting that both healthcare systems can deal with that. Is that a given?
2: It's not a given. And remember that healthcare systems in Canada are always scratching the surface of, of capacity anyway, right? Amongst OECD countries, we're among the least capacious when it comes to our healthcare system so this is the pigeons coming home to roost as it were uh, many of us have been asking for have greater capacity for many years and now we're seeing why there isn't a whole lot of wiggle room so we're barely staying afloat in some parts of the province and people need to understand that now there's still room at the end surgeries aren't being cancelled people are being turned away there's no hallway medicine as it's called but that might change in any given moment so we have to keep the cases. Low. The other issue is that the, um, the demographic is shifting slowly from the young people who have been getting it the last few weeks and months to an older demographic. Uh, the, that bleed over is starting to be seen now and that's what we're afraid of because the older demographic is more likely to be hospitalized and more likely to die. Again, this is an early part of the season. It's going to get worse probably.
1: Quebec Premier Francois Legault, we saw this week, he held the line. He told Montreal health authorities that he wasn't going to be uh, reopening or, or, or lessening restrictions. Ontario, as you mentioned, we have just now witnessed their new bringing in of a five-tier system. And they are reopening, to a certain extent, uh, in two and soon to be three of the four regions. Um, what I'm wondering is, is, basically, you're talking about a capacity which is going to be an issue as the winter arrives. Um, the director of public health here in Ottawa famously said she's rethinking it all. She was a hardliner, keep things closed. She's saying if people are not obeying regulations, maybe we need to open up the restaurants because if not, they're just going to get together in public, home, in private homes where we can't control them.
2: Well, I don't want to take her words out of context, because I think she's actually saying something a little bit different. She's suggesting that a harm reduction approach is relevant here, and that is, it isn't all about an extreme measure one way or the other. Um, you know, if we if the bars aren't open, people may socialize at home. Sure, it doesn't mean we have to keep bars open, fully open. It means we have to sort of balance the two the two venues somewhat. Second of all, what she's saying when she talks about living with this disease, I think, I hope, she's talking about the deployment of further public health measures and tools in society. The mitigation approach, as we sometimes call it. So, yes, we can open some things and we should expect cases to happen. But if we can descend on those cases with overwhelming public health tools, we can prevent them from becoming outbreaks. Kind of the way that South Korea and Taiwan do it. So if the Asian countries are going to be a model to us, they show us that you can have something resembling an open economy if you're willing to do the hard work of a lot of testing, a lot of contact tracing, and giving public health the powers to isolate and to punish those who transgress. So um, I think what she's arguing for is just expanded public health presence, not necessarily throwing up her hands and saying, we give up, the disease wins, it's here to stay. That's not at all what I think she's saying. So going forward, I think it's important for us to think about what is our medium and long-term strategy for dealing with COVID. If it's simply going to be waiting out rolling waves of lockdowns, that is not sustainable. What we need to think about is a hard suppression and getting our, our incidence rate down to something manageable, followed by enormous amounts of public health tools that allow us to live with this disease, for lack of a better phraseology, in such a way that the caseload remains extremely low and we need
1: not be afraid of it. Okay. Uh, Rima uh, Dionaden, thank you very much for uh, speaking with us. We will no doubt be speaking again as we watch this. Uh, something tells me it is far from over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, to look at today's issues in federal politics, I'm joined now by three observers from the different parties. Susan Smith is a liberal observer. Ashton Arsenault is a conservative. And Marcella Monroe is a longtime NDPer. All three of you, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us, Martin. Okay, let's start. Uh, Susan Smith, I want to start with a phone call that the prime minister made last night to French President Emmanuel Macron in the official transcript from the PMO. We learned that he assured the French president of the importance uh, and his defense of the freedom of expression. This, of course, relates to the reaction that the prime minister had of the beheading and the attacks in France concerning uh, what French authorities are describing as Muslim extremists who uh, have beheaded one person for his use, showing his students that infamous cartoon of the depiction of the prophet Mohammed. This all relates to the fact that the prime minister was asked to uh, comment on it. Last Friday, he commented on it, and he's been getting a lot of heat on it. Um, Susan Smith, how do you react to the fact that the prime Minister's on the phone last night to the French president, and he's being accused of being lukewarm in his defense of freedom of speech?
3: Well, not anymore. I think uh, the prime minister has, uh, he obviously condemned the terrible, terrible events that happened in France, Uh, but he he misspoke, I think, Um, and he he talked about, you know, you can't just say anything from a free speech perspective. You can't stand up and say fire in a movie theater, and that didn't go over very well, and he has since clarified it. Uh, He's clarified it publicly in Canada, and he had a conversation with... uh, Prime Minister uh, President Macron, look, Canada's relations with France are exceptionally strong. Uh, There is no one that doubts that our Prime Minister or any Canadian Prime Minister, for that matter, um, would uh, condone limits on free speech in the sense of or freedom of expression in the sense as long as it doesn't convey uh, contradict Canadian criminal law. And absolutely, Canada and Canadians I think stand in solidarity with their French uh, friends for the terrible tragedies. That but
1: had the, um, we, had, we had the spectacle, though, of, of Emmanuel Macron calling the Quebec premier, uh, François Legault, who this week said he disagreed with Mr. Trudeau uh, and agreed totally in defending uh, the French, you know, the French president's right and, and the right of French citizens. Uh, and he got a phone call from President Macron. Has there been damage to French-Canadian diplomatic relations? Well,
3: Mr. Macron, our prime minister... Our pre- Premier Legault got a call from uh, the French president right after the terrible tragedies as well in Quebec City with the Halloween massacres. So there are two uh, jurisdictions that have had terrible tragedies take place, To both very, very violent. Um, yeah, of course, there's probably politics that was in play there, but I don't think there's anything uh, really significant to be read in it in the long, even the short term or the long term relations when it comes to Canada and France. OK, absolutely.
1: Okay, yeah. Ashton, Ashton Arsenault, your reaction to how this is all played out?
0: Yeah, look, uh, another unforced error uh, by the Prime Minister and adds to a litany of unforced errors when it comes to international uh, relationships with foreign leaders. Um, I think the Prime Minister at the end of the day has a bit of a tenuous relationship with with free speech. It seems to me at certain times his definition is free speech is all fine and well so long as it doesn't offend anybody. In reality, that is not how free speech is defined. Uh, there has been Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court cases on this. It's very well understood that free speech means that you do have the ability to offend. Uh, of course, you don't have the ability to incite violence or hatred. But I think uh, this situation was bungled right from the get-go. And just you know, going back to the phone call, this phone call should have taken place a week ago. So basically, a fire has been allowed to brew for a week when a simple fix could have been achieved right away. And I just feel like it's just a complete unforced error and there's really no excuse for it.
1: Okay, Marcella Monroe, what do you make of all of this?
4: Um, I think, that, you know, that the Prime Minister has had a tendency in the past, and I think this is just an example where he maybe doesn't read the room uh, on on issues as they arise. I, I mean, I was quite surprised by his initial reaction. I'm obviously glad that he's uh, come around and clarified uh, you know, his belief and his strong support, both for the French people and for and for freedom of speech. Um, these issues are, you know, tenuous, not the issue uh, in France, which has caused the violence. Um, but I think that we do need to remember that lots of Canadians, especially those uh, who are people of color and indigenous, um, are feeling that there's a, they have a rising vulnerability and that um, that that speech patterns, that hatred, that racist bigotry is becoming uh, a little more tolerated, and so I wondered when I saw it. Uh, you know, though I disagreed with it, I wondered if that was playing in the prime minister's mind a little bit. So, you know, I'm a b- big believer in freedom of speech. You know, I don't disagree with anything the other or other two your other two guests have said, um, but I do think in this moment we need to realize that there's, this is a very tenuous subject for for a lot of Canadians uh, and. And um, he might have been that might have been part of what he's thinking was.
1: OK, I wanted to get to another issue, which has really raised a lot of political questions. That is, we saw yesterday, Ontario, province of uh, 14.6 million, 14.5 million people uh, in the midst of a pandemic delivered a pandemic budget. A lot of people, a lot of commentators and some politicians are saying if Ontario can deliver a budget in the middle of a pandemic, why can't Ottawa? Um, Provinces have a lot of challenges with their finances, trying to figure out where this pandemic's going. They're the ones who are responsible for the majority of spending on health care, and yet Ontario managed to produce a budget. Susan Smith, that's the question being asked of federal liberals. Why are we only getting an economic statement and not a budget? How do you respond to that?
3: Well, we are getting an economic statement and yes, we haven't had a budget this year. I expect one in February or March next year, but I think the, the the reality of it is the the pandemic keeps moving. We had a throne speech where the priority was very clear and remains clear, help Canadians attack the virus and the pandemic, figure out how we can manage that from health perspective and then get to economic Recovery. Challenge is, we're in the middle of a second wave again, and the goalposts from a pandemic perspective keep moving. I understand people are frustrated. Uh, I think there's there's transparency when it comes to committees. Uh, the public uh, procurement office is posting contracts and things like that I know people would like a budget but it isn't just one jurisdiction like Ontario is it's the whole country and the whole game keeps moving and the whole thing keeps changing Ontario's not responsible for the airline sector not responsible for the you know the national travel or the tourism sector the federal government has given the money for healthcare care and other issues to be able to to make these kinds of allocations but I think it's it's a bigger picture it's a national story and so I think that's why there's been some reluctance to put a budget forth at this point in the game because the ball keeps
1: keeps moving when it comes to the pandemic. OK, Ashton Arsenault, uh, from a conservative point of view, what do you make of it?
0: Well, I actually think Susan's right on the goalpost statement, frankly. I think, you know, initially the federal government would have thought, uh, well, maybe by now things would be improving. Well, we're right in the middle of the second wave, depending on who you listen to, maybe even the third wave. So, uh, you know, I I think give due credit uh, to the Ford government yesterday for putting out a budget that I think was rather thoughtful. I do think the fall economic statement that the federal government releases is going to be a little bit more robust than a normal uh, fall economic statement, which is a relatively new phenomenon, might I add. Uh, Um, but I would expect a more traditional budget very early in the new year commensurate with 2021. What my concern is, is will there be any sort of fiscal restraint? And thus far, it does not look like the federal government is going to anchor it in any way, shape or form. And I believe that, you know, businesses, Canadians, they need to be protected, they need to be supported. Very unusual time, unprecedented situation. But based on the lingo that I'm hearing from the federal government right now, it looks like that is way far off in the future, and it's not something they're currently thinking about. And that's a concern to me.
1: Okay, Marcella Monroe from an NDP point of view, uh, content to just have an economic statement, or should there be a full-fledged budget, or is it what's in it that matters?
4: Well, I think obviously we're in a different situation federally than they are here in Ontario uh, with a minority government situation. So, of course, any, anything they put in front of Parliament, uh, the federal government wants to make sure they're going to have the confidence of the House. And, of course, a budget is an instant confidence motion. So, there may be a little dynamic at play there. Um, listen, I think the most important things uh, to be looking for is, yeah, I agree with Ashton, there will be a more substantive uh, fall uh, economic statement um, but I also think um, what we need from this government is a lot more transparency. We heard the, um, the Budget Office this week uh, calling for more transparency on some of the spending plans uh, for the federal government. So I suspect that will be part of what uh, folks are looking for. Uh, and then, you know, I think there's a dance going on right now between uh, the New Democrats and the Liberals to figure out in this next tranche uh, of spending Uh, what are some of the trade-offs that they're going to be willing to make uh, if they, in fact, don't want another election.
1: Okay. Well, listen, all three of you, thank you very much. We will watch that, and that will obviously be a perennial issue. We'll watch as the date approaches. Ashton Arsenault, Marcella Monroe Susan Smith, thanks very much for taking the time.
0: Thanks for having us. Thanks. My pleasure.
1: Well, joining me now to, to, to look at the latest in politics and the coronavirus are Laura Stone. She's a political reporter for the Globe and Mail and works out of Toronto and Queen's Park. And Erica Ifill, who's a columnist for the Hill Times and co host of the Bad and Bitchy podcast. Welcome to you both.
5: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Uh, Erica, I just wanted to say the name of your podcast. It's so much fun to say. Uh, (laughs) Both of you, uh, very eventful days in both provinces and the the country as a whole. Uh, I want to start with you, Laura. We saw the Ontario... Budget yesterday, the first pandemic budget in Ontario, uh, a lot of money, a lot of the deficit, is going to be a record deficit, $45 billion targeted specifically to COVID spending. Much of it, though, has already been announced. What, how is it being received? Are there any surprises? How's it playing in Ontario?
5: Well, look, the the biggest uh, impact that the Ontario government wanted to have with this budget is the fact that they were having one and that they were having multi-year projections in the budget in regards to spending as well as the deficit. Martin, as you mentioned, it does have record spending and record deficit this year. Uh, and it gave two scenarios for the next two years. But the deficits are going to be in the 30s and, and $20 billion figures, certainly not what the Ford government had hoped for when they came into office. So this truly is a budget for the pandemic times and the government focused uh, a lot on increasing health spending. I think one of the more curious uh, elements of this budget and something that uh, a lot in the long-term care sector um, really gleaned onto when it was announced was the lack of details for this four hours of direct care that the government said that they would now take up after years of calls from unions and healthcare workers to increase. And we all saw the devastation that happened in the long term care sector during this pandemic. There's no money attached to that in the budget, and so the opposition and uh, the healthcare sector were very critical of the government for that and cast a lot of doubt on the sincerity of their pledge to increase uh, this direct care promise, which is not uh, going to be fulfilled until mm-hmm. 2024, 2025.
1: What about, uh, a lot of people are suggesting that if Ontario can produce a pandemic budget, why can't Ottawa? Are you hearing that around? Is that is that something that's now becoming a logical suggestion?
5: I think that's something that Ontario definitely wanted to point out with the creation of this budget. And uh, I I don't think it's any coincidence that we have Premier Ford and Finance Minister Rod Phillips in Ottawa today uh, touring around and, and meeting with some local stakeholders. I think they really wanted to come across as fiscally responsible as one could be during these times. Of course, they're spending a lot of money and the deficit is through the roof. But I do think they wanted to show Ottawa a little bit that it can be done. And of course, Martin, they also want to ask Ottawa for more money. This Canada health transfer is a big issue. And I think we're going to see that really pushed a lot more from from Ontario and the other provinces to increase uh, significantly the money that uh, that provinces get from the federal government to pay for healthcare.
1: Okay, Erica, I wanna ask you, uh, being in Alberta, I mean, One of the things that people are noticing is things have changed so dramatically in in Alberta, just in the course of a few weeks. I mean, the beginning of this pandemic, Alberta was shipping wholesale its its PPE, its its ventilators and its masks and its product to the rest of Canada, as it basically had very high levels of testing and very low levels of infection. This week, we saw rates skyrocket, and we are awaiting announcements from health authorities there for a crackdown. What is the atmosphere? How serious is the situation? How is that affecting the political culture there?
6: Well, it's very serious. Um, As you may or may not know, Foothills Hospital had a huge outbreak here uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, We're seeing increased rates of infection and this lackadaisical attitude towards um, restrictions such as mass social gatherings and social distancing have become more important as we've seen these cases just explode. And I just wanna say that I think the explosion of cases was entirely foreseeable, Mm -hmm. given what was happening around the rest of the country. And given that we have no immunity to this pandemic, we have no vaccine. So when the second wave was starting, in Ontario and Quebec especially, and then moved on to BC and now Manitoba, which had a low levels of infection too, Um, the inevitable just reached Alberta's
1: shores. I want to ask you, and it's, it's something I've been asking myself a lot, and that is in Alberta, we have, as you mentioned, we've seen a real resistance in the political culture to mandatory measures. And we even saw, you know, Dr. Dina Henshaw saying, no, we're, we're, we're pleased that we can ask people to do this voluntarily in Edmonton, in Calgary. Yesterday, she said, it's not working, obviously. Is that voluntary approach? Is that, is that sort of a libertarian streak in Alberta? Or is it also a consciousness of how bad the economy is faring and how much the impact is of mandatory closures?
6: But the thing about it is, is that without the the pandemic is the constraint at this point to everybody's economy. So the idea that the economy and the pandemic are somehow separate is an attitude that I would say was wrong from the beginning. This um, well, this libertarian attitude also gave uh, caused Jason Kenney to um, to cut health care. Or cut healthcare jobs, excuse yeah. me. Yeah, he's going um, ahead with
1: the plan cuts or plan, plan with yeah, plan. the plan
6: cuts to save $600 million, which, you know, if this pandemic uh, continues, is going to be more of a cost than $600 million. Okay,
1: I'm so, going to ask a, Sorry.
6: So the idea that you're cutting public health and healthcare in the middle of a pandemic is just ludicrous to me.
1: Okay, one last question, because I know you're both chomping at the bit, and federal politicians no doubt are, but they're resisting. That is the perennial question we're trying to get. Reporters are trying to get reactions from the prime minister, from federal politicians. They've got it from some opposition leaders, but the prime minister has been scrupulous in not commenting on the American election, on the process, on the allegations, on the results. Uh, How do you think he's doing, and and what do you think, what are you watching for in terms of the American politics and uh, Canadians' reaction? Uh, Laura?
5: I think it's really interesting that we heard from the Prime Minister today a real focus on the institutions and faith in the American institutions, uh, uh, the election institutions and democracy. That's clearly uh, a conscious decision to sidestep any political commentary and to resist any commentary on the crazed actions of U.S. President Donald Trump, or I don't know for how long, but uh, his speech last night, his his accusations, his baseless accusations about fraud in the electoral system, there's a lot that he can and should be saying right now, I would argue, but he is trying to keep his powder dry, the Prime Minister is, um, while the U.S. works this mess out. I wonder how much longer he's going to be able to do that and how much longer— other world leaders are going to be able to resist as they see this erosion of democracy uh, and and these statements, these falsehoods being perpetrated Mm -hmm. by Mr. Trump, and when we're going to see other politicians around the world and in the United States stand up to that.
1: Okay, Erica, what are you watching for? I mean, a lot of people have asked. They've also postulated that. They said, well, what happens when Donald Trump, for example, might ask other world leaders to weigh in or he challenges them to recognize him or whatever? Uh, What are you watching for?
6: Uh, Well, I don't expect Trudeau to say anything, really, because he hasn't said anything for four years. So why would he say (laughs) something now? (laughs) I mean, he had so much opportunity and decided to sidestep that question. I think I honestly... I think Donald Trump has enough problems with his donors right now in terms of pushing forth this this idea of um, going to the courts to somehow decide this election, a court which he, he conveniently has packed with his own sort of supporters. So I, I, I think the the U.S. is is an autonomous um, state. They can figure out their own vote count, and they can figure out their own mess. It's not for us as Canadians to, um, although we do weigh in. Like, let's be honest. But it's not for the prime minister really to weigh in and pick a side. It, that's just a bad, bad look altogether. Well, stay put. neutral. Stay away from it.
1: Well put. And I think he's taking your advice. Uh, listen, Erica and Laura, thanks uh, both of you for taking the time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Martin Stringer. Thanks for watching.